Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week. Please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And I want to thank my podcasting partner, Polstering Press, for this great studio. And I'd like to welcome today's guest, Sumantra. Now, how do you pronounce your last name? Sengupta. That's what I thought, Sengupta. Yep. And uh, I'm thrilled you're here from California Lutheran University. Yes, I am. And uh, how long have you been there? Um, about nine months, I think. Nine months? Yeah. And where were you before that? Um, I ran my own, and I still do. I um, operate my own consulting firm and uh, was a partner with a few large firms, then set up my firm seven years ago. And uh, part of that uh, ran a couple of large companies and uh, now sit on the board of the companies I ran. What do you like about running large companies? Well, the company that I ran um, as the president, um, a multinational, uh, you know, trading and processing company, and and we were in, uh, and the company is still in high growth mode, and so the the action and the activity all over the world, because I had uh, eleven operating units, selling into forty two different countries, and there was a, a trade happening somewhere in the world. What what does that business do? It, it's uh, agriculture trading, and uh, what does that mean? Um, we um, take product grown in eleven countries for animal feed, which means things like alfalfa grasses for the dairy, for the poultry, for the livestock channel, right. and then sell it, uh, export it across to forty-two different countries. How did you get into that? Uh, they were a client. They were a consulting client, um, just like uh, uh, most of my clients. And then I did some work for their U.S. business. Then I was introduced to um, the Middle East ownership. It is owned by um, one of the sovereign families of uh, United Arab Emirates. Right. And uh, so you you get to go to Dubai. I was and Abu I was, Dhabi. And I was out 110 nights a year for the last three years, somewhere in the world. Wow. I was traveling about between two to three weeks every every month. You said was so. I yes, uh, I do not now, travel that much. I don't travel. I bet all. you don't miss it. Um, there's parts of it I do miss. Um, the people. The people. Yeah. The business, because yeah. it was essentially my baby. The the globalization of that business was something that the vice chairman of the of the company uh, used to be a, a, a very senior diplomat for United Arab Emirates. Uh, and then he became the he he founded this company along with uh, Sheikh Hamdan, and um, and it was his vision to globalize this company. So. The the people that are listening to the show, we've got we're in forty two countries, so we're global. Yep. <laughs> and uh, but they're, I think they're mostly small businesses, sure. entrepreneurs, startups, and things like that. Sure. So, um, but we we've had conversations uh, with businesses here who who do global work, mm-hmm. and I think that now with the internet, we you know our businesses are increasingly more, our customers are more global. What what's 
different? If, if you were thinking about your, the person right now is listening, thinking about their business, how would I attract global customers or how would I do that? What are kind of a couple of things that they might ask themselves to see if my business even uh, able to be globalized? That's a very fair question. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing I always say is, is there a demand for your product? Uh, okay. Because if there's no no demand for your product, uh, then then you have to be able to create demand. Um, and that takes money and time. Uh, uh, so, so if there's a demand... If there's a demand, then great. and you have the product, then it's great. Then, but if there isn't a demand... Then you have to... Um, then it's no different than building a company in North America where you have to invest money in sales and marketing. Right, and right, And when it's right. overseas, it makes it even tougher uh, because proximity sometimes is a skill set. Even though, in, you know, we do live in a connected world, the product still you need to get paid and uh, and you need to uh, service the customers and and that can't be all done remotely we had a conversation just recently about logistics uh, and steel and how you they, they're wanting to build steel plants close to where the steel is used because the cost of shipping is so high right. so you, you know there's a lot of when if we're doing physical goods I'm I'm in uh, the business of ideas yeah and so they're lightweight in the sense that I don't have to have trucks to carry them mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of these physical goods so one of them is is if if there's demand engaging that what are some of the bigger challenges of global you've got to have a mindset um, you do yeah you do um, you know and 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 uh, I, I learned um, you know this, this when I ran this company for about three years um, I had many joint ventures that uh, uh, that I had to essentially oversee and uh, and what I realized is um, uh, not every partner wants to uh, be global some of them are very happy serving a small set of markets because when you're global, you truly have to be collaborative and you have to share both in ideas, in right. product, right. in channels, revenue in some cases. Sure. And, and sometimes the whole concept that if you work together, the pie becomes bigger, so your slice of the pie could be bigger, is not easily uh, explained or digested, especially by entrepreneurs who've been used to uh, uh, controlling uh, every aspect of their right. business. Right. You know, because when you, <clears throat> when you look at a, a global company or a multinational company in, in today's world, and I've worked across many of them uh, over my 25-year career, um, it's almost like you have to... Um, you have to give another person your, to a certain extent, your wallet. And, and How's that? Because you are sharing. You can't be everywhere all the time. Correct. In some cases, you will have partners who you have to trust to sell your product, to position your product, to make sure you're getting the right value and price for your product. And you have to make sure that you're comfortable with the set of partners. And that requires a mindset uh, which says, yes, I don't have to be there all the time. Mm. And my partners mm. will do, will watch for my interest just as fiercely as I would watch for my own interest. <laughs> Having, I, I have global experience with our animation company. Yep. We were in 42 countries and uh, I was fortunate enough pre 9-11 to do 
a, you know, a lot of traveling and getting to meet them. I, I think of uh, the cultural considerations as well yes. um, are, are a big part of it. And the, the working with partners and being able to let go, uh, that was kind of hard for me, mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, I, I, I warmed up to it and figured out how to do that. And I learned that the materials that we would present, the positioning, the selling points, the, all, the, all of those things were just kind of starting jumping off points right. for them. Because then they, you know, they'd say, uh, you know, Mark-san, you don't understand Japanese market, you know, and and as and I go, you're right. I need to become a student, so mm-hmm. that that's what happens, right? And Japan is a great example. Japan was probably my uh, fourth largest market in the in the yep. last business, and and I, I and I've worked for Japanese companies in the past. Um, that culture is unique. Uh, it, it, very it's, much it's so. unlike any other Asian culture. Um, because it is still very steeped in long-term relationships. Very much. Um, they don't switch suppliers at the drop of a hat like other countries will do. You truly have to do something counterproductive to both your businesses in order to not be on the supply list if, you have, if you're fortunate enough Once to you've be. gotten it. Once you've gotten it. Yeah. The, the process of getting in is long, extremely long. Yes. Um, there's a social element, there's a cultural element, the business element is, of course, there. And that's why, um, you know, I, I love doing business in Japan. Because, Me too. Because Me too. once I was there, and if I did right by my customers, they did right by me. Absolutely. And that has worked well for me in my services business. That worked well for me in the businesses I ran because I've had a few stints in the industry. Um, and, 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 and I really enjoy, um, you know, going back to Tokyo and other parts. Uh, probably one of my, my favorite countries to do business in. Extremely tough to do business there uh, uh, because of the barriers to entry. Right. But once you've got something going, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the best, uh, most rewarding experiences. We got a phone call or an email, I don't remember, this was 25 years ago now, uh, from our supplier who, um, as a result of a merger in our industry, the competitor was sowing disinformation about how we were reacting to that. And they were, uh, so Sony was their client. Sure. And they said, Sony is very, very nervous right now. We need you to come over. This is five days before Christmas. And it's like, uh, right. who wants to fly, you know? And and it was like, you know, you need to go. It's And got on a plane. And as you know, there's the whole time travel thing that happens. And I, sh- um, I got there for Monday night. And he took me to a three-hour Kaiseke dinner. Absolutely. Just him and I sitting down. And the social part, the relationship part, which I'm, my listener knows that's my kind of my favorite part of business mm-hmm. is we, we do business with our friends if we can. And if you're not my friend, <clears throat> you're going to be my friend pretty soon, right. uh, which I love. And, and it was, uh, I gave my 15 minutes the next morning of what the reality was. And, you know, I'm the founder. I'm there. I've got all that gravitas of that. You know what I learned in Japan? You know what's the most important thing on your business card? It, uh, the most uh, that will get you the most respect. It, it could say president, it could say CEO, it could say anything. But if you use the word founder, you're, it's weird. Right. You're in this elevated status. Right. But that um, that was a lie. It continues to this day that friendship with with him. Um, 
where's the toughest place to do business if you're global? The one you want to watch out for? Um, well, it depends on, on, on the type of business, okay. right? Okay, um, fair. Because there are, there are certain countries and cultures where um, you will negotiate for the last nickel and dime. Mm. And you will fight tooth and nail, especially if you're in a commodity business. If you're in a, uh, and, and, and that, that is probably prevalent everywhere. It doesn't mean that um, some people are better negotiators than others. It just means that um, uh, some people value, put a value to partnership, which may give you a small percentage point above the normal market price because they value sustainability, they value longevity, they value the, the actual service element, the people, if you're in the people business, they, right. the kind of people. Some countries will take that for, uh, for granted and will expect you to do all of that and yet continue to reduce your price uh, to a point where it's economically an unsustainable business. And, and I always say that, you know, and, and over the years I've maintained this, especially with, uh, with people in procurement who have reported to me or people I've worked with, that there comes a point in every negotiation where you should leave something on the table. Because Give if me an choose, example of that. So let's say you, you and I are negotiating a services deal. And we are down to, let's say the deal is over on a rate per hour. And you, are, you and I are down to a few dollars discrepancy between what you think I should charge and what I'm charging you. After a few rounds, if you, especially if it's a long-term relationship, it's probably okay to leave a couple of dollars. Again, depending on the magnitude and the percentage of, of what we're talking about, but you don't have to take 100% of every deal every time. It's okay to take 95% this time, and maybe in a future deal, you'll pick up a few dollars more than mm. what you expected to. I always look at it as look at it over the lifetime of the customer right, right. and the lifetime of the relationship. And if the lifetime of a relationship is just one deal, then that's probably not right. a long-term customer anyways. Right, right. And, and this has probably been the toughest thing for me to explain. Why, why do you think that is? Because um, we all want the best deal in every round. Right, because we won't we won't buy that thing in the grocery store. We'll see if we can get it on Amazon cheaper. Um, that's. <sighs> I mean, yeah. that's kind of the that's mentality, sure, right? Sure. Or you look at it on, at the store and then buy it on Amazon. Right. Uh, so that uh, someone explained that to me uh, a few years back in a way that where I got it that total lifetime value, mm -hmm. right? Which is I think a measurable thing Absolutely. when you you know you look at it and the the amount of energy that you spend to acquire that client and the expense mm -hmm. to acquire that client that, that you want to keep adding value and selling to that client because if you like just sit down and do the math especially in a subscription business or mm -hmm. renewable um, you're gonna your total lifetime values actually can be staggering sometimes and and you can't also the other thing that's interesting when you do that um, I I say I have to earn every minute. Mm -hmm. Like I have to, I, I want to keep talking to you. I have to earn with my listener. Sure. I've got to earn every minute, right? Sure. And so you can't just, um, you're not entitled to that total lifetime value. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to earn it. I've got a question. I'm going to go back to global for a second. Sure. 
in uh, 87, um, we acquired a company that had uh, a large Japanese base, which is how we got over okay. there in the first place. And none of us had traveled, and we were, you know, apprehensive. And one of the one of the partners uh, was married to a Japanese national, and so we got some coaching and learned about bringing gifts and um, all the things sure. that you do. Uh, but I found a book at that time. It was called Kneel, Sit, or Bow, and it was how to do business in a hundred countries. And I don't know if it's even still in print, but that it told you what the working hours were. Do they work on Saturday or not? Or do they hard out at five o'clock? Do they, how do you behave in a meeting? Are they a collaborative culture? Do they expect you to do this? Do they expect you to do that? And I think doing, and this gets back to my relationships, doing the background on how they, if it's all about them, how sure. do they work? How do they do business? What's that, again, I think I said earlier, cultural consideration. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do? Do you, um, do you study? I mean, you've been doing this yeah. your whole career, so you've yeah. learned a lot of that. Um, I do. Um, I study. Um, and I do something which I don't find executives, a lot of executives doing, which is listen. <laughs> <laughs> right, especially once you. Uh, as it's actually not just executives. Uh, I, I find that uh, fascinating in academia more than uh, uh, industry. Um, you know, um, you, you put yourself on pause, just waiting for the next time you can talk. Um, uh, and I and I observe a lot um, because I, I've you know the, the, my favorite example is people will say well what's the Asian culture like well there is no such thing as Asian culture mm -hmm. you've got Japanese Chinese uh, yeah, Korean Korean yeah, yeah. Thai Vietnamese yeah. you've got India right. you know <laughs> last time I checked that was part of Asia yeah it is uh, there is no such thing as Asian culture there are probably rules and norms that work across all of Asian sick for example they are even today Asian companies tend to be fairly hierarchical so for example if you the boss is sitting next uh, and I'm your subordinate and we are in a meeting together it is highly likely that the boss will be the one speaking most of the time right now unlike you know US companies which tend to be more uh, open uh, but there are certain cultural um, aspects that I don't think will ever disappear uh, when you look at Asian businesses, if there's any consistent, but uh, anything consistent. But w what I've always done is, is, is try to understand. I would do a little reading um, generally now, you know, online in terms of what some cultural norms are. You know, in the Middle East, for example, um, you never launch straight into a business topic. Right, right. You will start with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. How's the family? You know, especially if you've known them for a bit. And and the business topics will come at some point. Um, but it's not the way we conduct meetings here, where we walk in with an agenda. Get to the point. Get to the point. You will never do business there if all you want to do is get to the point. Right. Because the point is spread across all elements exactly. of the experience. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and sometimes that's good. Europeans tend to do some of that as well. Um, you know, because I've done a lot of work. In and again, Europe. you can't, to your point, you can't generalize on Europeans. Absolutely not. Right. The, the British do business in a certain right. way. The right. Dutch, the right. French, the Italians. And our listeners in Finland. 
I have never had an opportunity to do any business in I, Finland. I can't wait to go to Scandinavia. You know, and and uh, most of my work has been in 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 probably. You know, I actually did some work in Spain, Italy, France, um, uh, UK, of course, um, and 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 some other of uh, you know Eastern Europe uh, quite a bit as well. But never had a chance to go either to Finland, Norway, and it's always been on my list. This idea of um, that conversational approach to business, which is um, antithetical to how we're, I mean, mm -hmm. we, we want to just, we're time compressed, we've got to get to the point, I only have 12, you know, all that, uh, you know, I'm with you there. Uh, I've been trained my whole life in that, and I'll spend it may be an inordinate amount of time, uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just there's so much to someone's life, you know, that, that brings them to that table. And w once we get to know one another and like one another and focus on, again, my whole career is around relationship, the business will happen. Okay. You know, that'll just, because oh, you'll, I'll, it, it, sometimes it's almost an afterthought. Oh, can I send you that proposal? Yeah, 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 send it, I'll, I'll take care of it, don't worry about it. And there's your yes and your uh, agreement and everything right at the front end. You know, the, the fundamental mark is not never going to change, which is people want to do business with people they like. Yep. That, yep. that, that transcends industries. Yep. It transcends cultures. And, and the more executives can understand that, the better it is for the overall business and sustainability of your business. And But that is something I find we miss. Why do you think that is? Because it's, 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 a, it's a foundational, fundamental concept of how you work with people. Well, because the, you know, I think you, you, you've, you, you said something which I'm going to use later, which is conversational uh, way of doing business. Right. I, I have never heard that term, but it's, it's exactly right. So you can copyright it. I will use it. <laughs> um, I, I think what happens is um, uh, the, that element of doing business sometimes gives the perception that your deal closures will take longer. And it's highly possible it will. It's not been proven, but I'm sure there's somebody who's written something that says, if I spend 20 minutes talking to you, that my overall deal time to close was 10 minutes more. And because we're so conditioned to having to deliver quarterly earnings. Right, right. That I don't have the time sometimes to sit and really get to do business that way. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. It it's uh, that's just the way it is. You know, I, I remember when um, you know we I was we were a partnership um, at Ernst and Young, who, where, where I kind of cut my teeth in consulting, um, and then we were sold uh, to uh, a French giant Capgemini, and the and the and it was during the time of Sarbanes Oxley when all the uh, the big accounting and consulting firms were having to divest their consulting right. business. Right. And, and so we had a few deals on the table and, you know, I had just been elected. I was up for election that year to partner, so I had no say in it. Um, but what I found, the biggest difference between our way of doing business, and a, and a very senior partner explained this to me, is, you know, we never looked at quarter-by-quarter quarter earnings. It didn't mean we shouldn't have. Maybe we should have paid more attention to quarter-by-quarter. Quarter. 
But we looked at it as, did we do the right thing across the whole year? Right. Or across the whole right. two years, four years? You know, because an exec, and I've had clients who have been my clients for 10 plus years across multiple firms. Um, and we would always look at it as across the lifetime of the client. Back to what you said Back earlier, then. right? But that didn't always transfer well into how I delivered on quarterly earnings. Now, you know, it was our choice. You know, we sold to a firm that was publicly traded that had to give guidance to, you know, different exchanges where right. we were traded. Right. So right. Right. it was a different business model. And it took, uh, it was a, not only was it a cultural um, uh, difference because, you know, we they were a European company. We were primarily a U.S. firm, even though we were global. But the very fact that we were a partnership and they were a corporation uh, was was a tough uh, bridge for many people uh, to cross. Yeah, uh, cultural that cultural clash. Right? The cultural clash, the the looking at it quarter by quarter. Now, I will say, you know, looking at it quarter by quarter probably allowed us to look at our business and understand if some of what we were doing was right, because there does come a point in time when you know you and I can have the best conversations, but if there's not going to be a purchase order, right. I should know. Right, right. So there's. Um, you got me thinking about measurement and you know quarter by quarter that's a measurement and that's where we're just looking four times a year and and now with um our businesses being so highly data driven we have dashboards heck we have dashboards on our phone where we're, we're checking things um where they say that which gets measured gets done so we're, we're not saying you don't have those right. measurements but that the priority is on the, the relationship uh, someone ex well, it was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence yeah, People. Yeah. When I was 19, I read that book. Sure. And it was to think relationally, not transactionally. Right. And that that it does, you have to trust that that's the way to go. And it might not be the way for everyone. I, I we were, you said that people do business with people they like. And I learned um, people like who they are like. Very true. And so that's where, you know, my, my software, my day job as a software company is uh, we build, w building a profile of someone so that I can see how alike I am, where am I aligned, but not just on experience and skills, but where am I aligned on values and goals and what I'm seeking in life? Because we learned at TED, I'm a Tedster, okay. and, and we built the software for TED 14 years ago now. Uh, Chris Anderson said it's just because we have skills in common, we have experience in common, we all these other things you would think we'd be a perfect fit, if we don't have common values, then our relationship's not gonna have any longevity at all. Absolutely, that, that is very true. Um, and, and I've seen that go both ways in my own career. You know, there, there have been assignments and jobs I've taken where it almost seemed like it would be a perfect marriage. Right. And it was a disaster. Mm. And then there are ones I've taken where I was like, wow, I was on the fence. And they were on the fence probably true uh, themselves, but it's turned out to be some of the most fulfilling assignments I've done. On one of the ones that was a disaster, looking back at it, what do you think you might have done differently? Um, probably exited earlier than I did, you know, because mm. at some point you, you look at it and you go, 
you know, the signs are all pointing in the wrong direction. Mm. And then you uh, fool yourself into thinking that you can change the trajectory of every one of them. Right. Why? Because especially as consultants, we we are taught that you know that's how you win your merit badge, right? Is uh, when How's you that? take well, when you take something that is going in the wrong direction and you turn it in in the right direction. That's you know, especially for the work I've done, which has primarily been around turnarounds and, and efficiency and growth. You know, th- those typically tend to be. Um, uh, always, uh, you know, in in tough environments, but sometimes when you know everything is is just stacked against you, um, and you've got a time window that is probably uh, unachievable, it's best to just bow out and and just exit. It's not a loss. It's just being a prudent businessman. That is, that lesson might actually be harder than the other ones we've talked about. Absolutely. Right? It's, uh, my analogy goes back to fishing. It's like, when do you cut bait? Yes. Right? It's when it's Fish like. Fish or cut bait, right? Right? Yeah. That's what they say. And it's, he's like, well, no, it might be the biggest fish I've ever caught. Yeah, and it might be on, you're snagged on a log. The, the, I think the, over the years I've learned <laughs> that. My wife has always been more right than me in the deals where I should have cut. There's the earlier. lesson. There's That's the, the lesson, lesson that I've wife. learned. I've learned the lesson that she has nothing to do with the business. She's right. a she's a neurologist. Right. Um, but well, she has a superpower. She, she around, does. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and 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 what I've always said is, you know, once in a while I would come and say, oh, you know, this thing is just, and, and she. Over the, we've been married now 19 years, and she's never been involved in any aspect of my business. And and but she's involved in your life. Yes, and I've never been involved in any aspect of her business, which is what keeps it uh, <laughs> 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 keeps it working. Um, but she would often say, "She'd be like, hmm, it seems like it's time for you to punch out of this one, or maybe you should, you know, maybe think about just putting." And then she'd go back to doing whatever she was doing. And I do would, you defend I, why you're staying with it, or do I, you just go hold? You, you know, know I, early days I used to defend it. Right. And then I learned it's just not worth defending, or and not that I would uh, execute what uh, what she was telling me to do, but it was always over the years it's become an important data point for me to consider. So that that brings up a skill that is really hard for a business owner, entrepreneur, consultant to get, because you don't want to have practice at it. How do you fire a client? <laughs> Very difficult. Um, um, and, and I never say you fire a client, I just say you part ways. Okay. Right. Um, so you so you flip your focus. Yes, you, okay. you essentially part ways, and if I've and I've done it a few times, and I'm sure it's been done to me, just not openly. Um, my method has always been to say this is just not working for us mutually anymore, or my firm, whichever firm I was with. Let me find you a type of firm that would probably be better suited for your needs today. And that can happen over a, over the life of a relationship as well. You know, uh, just because I was great for the business at one stage doesn't mean that mm. I continue to be great mm. for that business. It's knowing um, what type of help they need 
uh, at, at during their life cycle. Well, it's back to that conversation and listening. Yes. Like if you're listening and you're asking questions, which is what I love about this podcast because I love asking questions, uh, you're, you're going to know. Yeah. Right. And if as you're listening. You, well, exactly. Right. As you said, um, which is I'm going to make a shout out. Uh, uh, Alan is listening right now and he's my improv instructor. Yeah. And I would argue that every person in business, I would argue every person should go find an improv class workshop in their community at a community college, at a uh, social club and go join uh, because you will learn. That's the number one thing we learn: how to listen. It's not how to be funny, how to be listen, how to listen, how to be present. And when you said earlier, we don't listen because I'm I have an agenda. I have things I need to communicate, and I'm going to be polite and let you talk. And then as soon as you shut up, I'm not going to react at all to what you said. I'm going to say what I wanted to say. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Which don't do that, <laughs> listener. Don't do that, Alan. Right. Don't don't do that. Um, you are. A, a noted expert in turnarounds. Yes. And uh, which I, and again, I'm going to thank Calu, uh, California Lutheran University right, right now for, for these introductions because um, we have some really fascinating people here who the civilians don't have an opportunity mm-hmm. to talk to. Um, when should... Uh, a CEO, and it's probably the board brings you in, but I'm thinking, when does a CEO think, well, I mean, when do they have the awareness and the honesty to say, I need a turnaround guy? Well, you know, turnarounds, um, uh, and and I've only recently started using that uh, term in my in my resume or other places, oh. uh, because turnarounds have a uh, negative connotation. Well, I was just going to say. Right? Uh, because turnarounds typically mean the business is suffering or failing. And, or going in the wrong direction. Or going direction. in the wrong direction. <laughs> and, and, and I think turnarounds um, uh, can be just as effective in a highly successful business, um, because as opposed to, you know, generating three percent top line maybe you should be generating six percent top line right well, that's a turnaround that's a turnaround on a healthy business got it but turnarounds historically have had the connotation of bankruptcies foreclosures you know that's been the the general uh, uh, connotation of turnarounds <clears throat> so back to the question of um what's the what's I, another way to call it what's a, a more positive spin on that then if you're marketing that What's a better word to use? Hmm, I have to think about that. Um, I can't think of one right now, Mark. I, um, uh, but um, you know, when when I'm <clears throat> when I'm out, uh, uh, not 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 lately, but when I was out uh, talking to customers or clients, uh, um, I would always uh, go on. Um, you know, uh, talk about uh, which part of their business they were looking to not turn around but improve uh, mm, leaps mm. and bounds. You know, was it the PNL? Was it the balance sheet? Um, and in some cases, uh, it was clear that a turnaround was needed, which meant drastic change. Mm. In some cl- <clears throat> in some cases, it was clear that incremental change but moving them in a direction that they would benefit in the long run was what was needed. And that itself is also an element of turnaround, but you would call that probably uh, improvement and not turnaround or efficiency gains. Right, Um, right. But going back to your initial question, which is um, 
you know, how can a CEO be uh, aware? Um, it, it takes a special type of uh, CEO. Um, uh, to, Pretty to be, aware. To be aware or, um, you know, that they uh, they need to have somebody come in and look at their business uh, because generally uh, that's the CEO's job, right? The CEO's job is to No, I mean, that's the, the point, right? That's You're the, saying, <clears throat> hold it, maybe I'm not doing this. That's where I'm saying that the, the board might bring that person and, in. And, and, and what happens when the board brings a person in, which has happened to me a few times, um, you're immediately uh, you're at a disadvantage. That's a hostile environment. That for is a hostile you, isn't environment. Because yeah. you're like, what's uh, this cat doing here? Exactly. Telling me what to do. Especially if the board has been the only one that has inserted you. If the board has suggested and the executive team has implemented, then it works. Uh, because then the executive team feels that they were part of the decision process. Mm. But if you mm. were just put there by the board, uh, then uh, it, it's going to be a long, uh, it's, it's a longer road than normal. I want to finish up on, I want to talk about teaching. Yes. Um, I love teachers. Um, I love, uh, I love learning. And there's two sides of that coin, the, the, the student and the teacher. I think people who are great students make great teachers and now you're uh, as a consultant there's a teaching aspect to that but yeah. now you're you know you're in front of students MBA students mm -hmm. now um, what what is it that you love about that because you you know you said okay I'm gonna step out of the day-to-day -day of a big business and I'm gonna guess Gerhardt uh, recruited you he did he is spectacular he at recruiting he did right um, what did what what did I'm curious here we go Gerhardt I know you're listening uh, what did he say that pushed you over the edge and said yep I'm gonna do it uh, I, I, I think the, the the process was quite long at at Cal Lutheran. Um, in fact, you know, I I had to meet uh, even Chris Kimball. Was well, Chris part. has been on the show. Chris is and, great, and and he was actually my last interview before okay. the job was offered. Okay, which I was like, why does the president have to interview me? On hindsight, I can understand w what they were doing, but I think what. Um, um, uh, Gerhardt's uh, responsiveness um, mm. uh, was was one of the was one of the early factors uh, for me because um, you know I sent an email literally it was a blind email I saw the the posting and as opposed to applying um, I sent an email to Gerhardt and oh. I introduced myself blind and I said you know here's my rough background I saw this posting. Is I would you even be considering non-traditional resumes like mine? Even though I do have my PhD from a Carnegie One school, but I'm not an academic. And normally, uh, most often, these positions tend to be academics who have then wanted to go into administration. Right. And 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 literally, I think I was I was traveling. Not nothing. I was traveling somewhere in the Middle East. Um, and within an hour or a couple of hours, I actually had a response from him saying, no, I really think you should apply. Of course, there's a search committee, so, uh, but, but I, I would encourage you to apply and, uh, and, and put, put the process through, um, which, which was... So it was responsiveness. It was his responsiveness. And then as I met him, um, uh, you know, I, I met him, actually, he, I spent the least amount of time with him during my interview process. Ironically. Yeah, it was less than 20 minutes. Um, um, because I was essentially being socialized with many constituents within Cal Lutheran. Mm -hmm. um, um, and um, 
but but I, I, I realized that you know the school was uh, was heading in a in a, in a different direction uh, than what it had been uh, and that I could come and run this program as a business let me ask you about responsiveness because it I have uh, we all have pet peeves yes one of mine is that whomever I'm doing business with, if they are not responsive, and being a good communicator is not high on their list, they just, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter to them. They don't care. Um, versus, Gerhard, I've noticed that responsive. There are people in my ecosystem that I'm, they're just my go-to people because they're responsive. Um, where do you place responsiveness on your list of character traits for leadership? Um, high, but I will have a caveat. Um, the mode of communication is just as important. Okay. Um, some people will measure responsiveness uh, as how quickly did you respond to my email, right? Because email is very pervasive. Yes. But having worked extensively in the Middle East um, in the last three years, I found that uh, responsiveness there is much more uh, uh, talk interaction. If you pick up the phone and call. Old school. Old school. If we would call it old school. Right. Um, there's a huge element of responsiveness. There would be times when I wouldn't get a response to an email, but it's not that the email hadn't been read or acknowledged. They were waiting for a phone call. And as soon as I called them, oh yeah, yeah, we wanted you to, we wanted to chat with you. Because the, 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 the live interaction is much more valued in that part of the world than it is probably here. And so I always say responsiveness has to be measured based on the mode. You know, if it's telephone, that's then you should be looking for telephonic. If it's email, you should be looking for email. Uh, and so I, I learned to calibrate that. Having said that, the personal rule that I've always had mm. over my entire mm. career mm. is that no matter where I'm at, a person, if they email me, will get a response within 24 hours. Ah. Uh, and, and the reason I always put 24 is because there would be sometimes I'd be taking flights which sure. were 16-hour duration. <laughs> so, I, and I, I'm not one of those uh, who logs in when From I'm flying. From the plane. No, yeah. I, I, I just, it's just, it's just yeah. not my thing. Yeah. Um, so, but I've always maintained that. Um, uh, even if the response is just to say, I've acknowledged, I've, I've received your email. Even that, you will be guaranteed to get that. I love that. So I do place that very high. I uh, I appreciate everything I've learned from you today. I did not. I want to just thirty seconds on. I mean, you've got a BS in applied mathematics. Um, how did math? How does math figured in your life? Because you didn't go into the accounting firms. You no. went consulting. Well. I, I was, uh, you know, I actually got my, my bachelor's and my master's in applied math. First. Okay, okay. And I was going to be a math professor. I, really? I, enrolled, I enrolled in the doctoral no program kidding. in math. Huh. And I quickly realized that um, uh, I, uh, I was probably more a capitalist than what I wanted to admit back then. Right. And so then I looked around and I said, how can I apply my quantitative skills but in business? So uh. I, I happened to have at that point uh, been at Ohio State University. And I was actually enrolled in the, in the Ph.D. program in statistics there. Uh. And I spent a summer there and I happened to run into some business school students. Uh. And they go. said, well, for what you want to do, you may want to just stroll over to the business school. 
which I did, and I just walked into the department chair's no office, kidding. and I said, you know, this is my thing. He goes, well, you know, I, th I think there's still time, and I have one PhD slot what? open this year. Oh, my gosh. So if you that can get... That changed everything. He said, if you can get the stats department to agree to release you, right? I'm more than happy to get you here. How about that? And the stats department, they said, okay, you're not leaving the university, so we're okay. Um, good luck. And that's how I ended Just up like in the B school and uh, and continued on, and and I've kept I've stayed very true, very close to my quantitative uh, skills, right? Because a lot well, of my in work, your DNA. yeah, a lot of my work has been around large data. I yeah. did software design for a large company yeah. one time, so yeah. so I've kind of sort of stayed close. And then last ten years, I've branched out. And, and you must love that. I mean, now big data and machine learning and all of that is is. A huge conversational topic. I always say big data is very important, but do not forget that small data does still matter. Oh, I'm going to. That's my quote for the show. And that is something we're forgetting, that the little idiosyncrasies of a buying cycle or a trade cycle or business manifests itself in also the small data elements. If they say God is in the details. Yes. Right. Okay, I've heard the other one, but yes, yes God is in the details. <laughs> Sumatra, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, my, my listener knows that, that it's this point in the show, um, and I know Isa is waiting for me to ask you, what title do we give the show? You've heard the show, so we get to give this a title that's intriguing and captivating, and we'll get someone who's maybe come and listen to another show, and they're going, what am I going to listen to next? And this show is called... Wow. Tell me what you, something made you laugh just then. You thought of it, but you edited yourself. What no, it? I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had mentally, I, I listened to some of your podcasts yeah. and I was, I, I saw the curveballs you throw once in a while, <laughs> but not this one. You've never, <laughs> the ones I listened to, you didn't ask them to uh. name it. Um, I know the journey of a, of a, uh, of a, of an immigrant. I don't know, you know, of a consultant to an educator. Consultant to educator. Okay, I like that. You know the, the yeah. Because a lot of time, what happens is the educators want to get out into the business world, and uh, they want to figure out how to do that. I'm actually working with a client right now who's mm -hmm. helping people transition from edu to dot com. Right. How, how do they do that? So thank you so much for thank being on you. the show. And we can find you. I'll put a link in the show note, but you've got a page up on the Cal California Lutheran University's yep. page, and we will do that. I uh, would love to uh, send me a note or an idea for a guest. Drop me a line at mark at 805connect.com. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.